Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. As this year marks the 150th anniversary of the Tube, we thought we'd take a look at the great capital we've been journeying around underground since 1863. First up, we have a reading from Elif Shafak's powerful novel, Honour, a masterfully woven story of love, loss and betrayal experienced by an immigrant family in 1970s London. We'll also be talking to Mari Yamazaki, a publicist here at Penguin, about the Penguin Line series, a collection of tales from 12 best-selling authors, each inspired by a different tube line. After that, we'll be looking at London in a rather different light, with an extract from Charlie Higson's post-apocalyptic horror, The Enemy, read by Paul Whitehouse. If you live in North London, beware. Camden will never feel the same again. To finish off our literary look at London life, we'll be talking to Iris Joan Simmental, author of Far From the East End, the moving tale of one young evacuee's journey from Blitztime London to the Welsh countryside and back again. So let's start by giving a Penguin podcast welcome to Elis Shafak. This is an excerpt from the very beginning of the novel, Honour, and we will be hearing Esma's voice shortly. She is the only daughter of the Toprak family. Um, she has experienced an honour killing in the family. It is not a typical honour killing, if there is such a thing, um, in the sense that this time it's the, the boy, Iskander, who wanted to punish his mother. So I focus closely on mother-son relationship, and now we will be hearing Esma talking about her brother. My mother died twice. I promised myself I would not let her story be forgotten, but I could never find the time or the will or the courage to write about it. That is, until recently. I don't think I'll ever become a real writer, and that's quite all right now. I've reached an age at which I'm more at peace with my limitations and failures. But I had to tell the story, even if only to one person. I had to send it into some corner of the universe where it could float freely away from us. I owed it to Mum, this freedom, and I had to finish it this year, before he was released from prison. When that day arrives, I'll be in front of the prison building, waiting. I'll pace the street or lean against the wall across from the main entrance, waiting for him to come out. I don't know how long this will take, and I don't know how he will react when he sees me. I haven't visited him for more than a year. I used to go regularly, but as the day of his release drew closer, I just stopped. At some point, the massive door will open from inside and he will walk out. He will gaze up at the overcast sky, unused to seeing this vast expanse above his head after 14 years of incarceration. I imagine him blinking at the daylight like a creature of the dark. In the meantime, I'll stay put, counting up to 10 or 100 or 3,000. We won't embrace. We won't shake hands. A mutual nod and the thinnest of greetings in small, strangulated voices. Once we get to the station, he will hop into the car. I'll be surprised to see how athletic he is. He's still a young man, after all. There have been many times when I thought of killing him. I made elaborate plans, 
that involved guns, poison, or better yet, a flick knife, a poetic justice of sorts. I've also thought of forgiving him, fully and truly. In the end, I haven't achieved either. Should he want to have a cigarette, I won't object, even though I hate the smell and don't let my husband smoke in the car or in the house. We'll drive across the English countryside, passing through quiet meadows and open fields. He will inquire about my daughters. I will tell him they're fine, growing fast. He will smile, though he hasn't the slightest idea about parenthood. I won't ask him anything in return. I will have brought a cassette along to play the greatest hits of Abba, all the songs that my mother used to hum while cooking or cleaning. Take a chance on me, Mamma Mia, Dancing Queen. For she will be watching us, I'm sure. Mothers don't go to heaven when they die. They get special permission from God to stay around a bit longer and watch over their children, no matter what has passed between them in their brief mortal lives. Back in London, I will search for a parking space, grumbling to myself. It will start to rain, tiny crystal drops. Finally, we'll find a spot into which I'll squeeze the car after a dozen manoeuvres. I can deceive myself that I'm a good driver until it comes to parking. I wonder if he will scoff at me for being a typical woman driver. He would have done so once. We'll walk together towards the house the street quiet and bright behind and ahead of us. For a fleeting moment, we'll compare our surroundings with our old home in Hackney, marvelling at how different things seem now and how time has moved forward even when we couldn't. Once inside, we'll take off our shoes and put on slippers. From the doorway, he will watch me make tea, which I will serve without milk and with lots of sugar, that is, if jail hasn't changed his habits. Then I will take out the sesame helva. We will sit together by the window with porcelain cups and plates in our hands, watching it rain on the flowers in my back garden. He will compliment me on my cooking, saying how much he has missed sesame helva, though he will politely decline another serving. I will tell him I follow our mother's recipe to the letter, but it never turns out as good as hers. That will shut him up. We will lock gazes, the silence heavy in the air. Then he will excuse himself, saying that he feels tired and would like to rest if that's all right. I will show him to his room and close the door, slowly. I will leave him there, in a room in my house, neither far away nor too close. I will keep him confined within those four walls, between the hate and the love, none of which I can help but feel, forever trapped in a box, in my heart. He's my brother. He, a murderer. Now, elbows at the ready as we head underground with Mari Yamazaki and Natalie Williams. Hello, uh, Natalie Williams here. I'm going to be talking with Mari Yamazaki about the Penguin Line series today. Hi, Mari. Hello. Um, so first and foremost, let's have a little chat about the Penguin Line series from particular books. Uh, why are they so great? Why are they so kind of penguin? Well, what's particularly lovely about Penguin partnering with TfL is because we have such a shared history and of course 
when Penguin first started with Anne and Lane, uh, the famous story about how he was at a train station and he had his brainwave about the sixpenny paperbacks. So obviously we've got that train connection anyway in our history. But then we've also shared, you know, lots of designers, lots of people. So, for example, David Gentleman, whose designs are all over the tube, um, he's one of Penguin's you know, best-loved authors. Yep. So it's a really lovely relationship to have. Fantastic. So um, we'll just talk about the, the series itself a little bit. So the 12 books in the series, mm-hmm. representing the 12 different lines. Indeed. They each have brilliant jackets, kind of... Yeah, they're really, really wonderfully designed. And actually, um, at the back of each um, book, we did a kind of like Top Trumps-esque yep. thing. So each author... Um, you know, says a little bit about themselves, but they also designed their own covers and they chose their own titles as well. Okay. So it's really unique to each author. So you're really getting the author's voice coming mm-hmm. across, yeah. and they're all quite personal as well yes. to the kind of um, mission yeah. statement. Of they all went completely in their own direction. Yeah. So that's what's really nice. So 12 very unique tales, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of perfect, really, because mm-hmm. London is full of very unique people. Exactly. Um, so Let's talk about the tube a bit. What is your favourite tube line? What's your kind of commute? Well, I guess my own tube line would be the East London line, which technically isn't even a tube line. It's an overground line. But we had to convince TFL to let (laughs) us include it in this series. And luckily they said yes. Um, And that's Fantastic Man, isn't it? That's Fantastic Man. That's buttoned up. Um, I also use the central line, which I sort of half love because I think it's also the hottest line. Mm -hmm. So I think the average is over 30 degrees um, on the carriages, which is very hot. Um, And also, I had a weird thing on the central line when three times in one week... Uh, there was a body on the line, oh. so the trains were delayed. So I thought it was maybe me. And then, so I stopped, I stopped using the central line. I started using Piccadilly line. And then <laughs> the same thing happened, but it wasn't bodies on the line. It was someone pulling the cord to stop the stop the tube. Three What's going on? Is this why my Piccadilly line train is constantly delayed? It's my fault, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for that. <laughs> That's why I'm late. Um, so, okay. Um, the books themselves, do you have a favourite amongst them? I know there's, it's really hard to choose. Uh, they're all fantastic. It's really, really hard to choose um, because they're so different. But I guess I've got a few, if I'm allowed more than one. You are. Favourite. You are. Um, so I would really recommend people pick up Mind the Child, uh, which is uh, by the kids' company. Um, and... It's just completely compelling. Um, It's got a lot... If you don't know what Kids Company is, they're an amazing charity that looks after disadvantaged children in London. Uh, 36,000 kids, I think, they help in London. And they've written about the Victoria line. And their book is all about hidden voices, voices you don't hear in the media, you know, from these hidden children in hidden parts of the city. So a lot of the children's voices are in the book itself. Mm -hmm. And you just start reading their stories. And you just, you know, they're so moving. And they're unbelievable as well. And you just can't put it down. And I think it's a really important book for people to read. So I'd say that's one of my favourites. And then Completely on the other end of the spectrum, uh, there's Buttoned Up by Fantastic Man, which is so cool because it's basically a magazine within a book. So the authors are uh, Fantastic Man uh, magazine, these two amazing Dutch guys. Obviously, they're not British. Um, 
But we, you know, we, we were like, it doesn't have to be Londoners who write for this series. Hey, London's a rich tapestry, a melting pot. Exactly, it's, it's a melting pot, so it's perfect. And, you know, they've got loads of amazing images, um, but, you know, they've done an interview with, like, Neil Tennant, for example. So it's really rich, fun read about an area that I live in. And it's nice and visual as well. It's lovely so. and visual. Yeah. Um, some good photography in that one. Some very good photography, f- uh, photographs that they took brand new for the book. Oh, really? So yeah. the night and day stuff um, of yeah. street corners around East London. Yeah, all this is okay. new. Um, these kind of very moody shots of these um, boys in these buttoned-up shirts. Uh, it's very atmospheric. Um, so that's definitely one of my favourites. Fantastic. And I think... Um, well, we're both going to do a little reading, aren't we, mm. of two of our favourite extracts yes. from other favourites. So yes. um, who have you chosen? So I've chosen um, Lucy Wadham's book called Heads and Straits. And she's written, ostensibly, it's about the circle line. Okay. Um, but really, it's about her just completely eccentric, charming family. Uh, even more than that, actually, it's about strong women. Yeah. So she, so it's obviously Lucy herself, um, but she's got something like a million sisters, um, and then there's her mother, um, and then her, <laughs> her really sort of rich description of her grandmother, Nanny Eileen, <laughs> um, who you know was a complete uh, trailblazer for yeah. her time, and you know she was friends with Virginia Woolf when she was little and she lived this completely bohemian life and um, is really rubbed off on her grandchildren and you know they grew up on the circle line as Chelsea girls so you know they were well posh Um, but you know it was the 70s and it was King's Road and it was punk and it was drugs and Heads and Straits is a drugs reference so there's a lot of um, juicy things to get your teeth into and it's just beautifully written. Fantastic, take it away. The 70s marched on and the colours on the King's Road turned slowly from rainbow to black. In 1976, a fracture opened up between my three eldest sisters. Izzy and Beatrice still favoured cowboy boots with long, embroidered, Arthurian dresses that came from a shop on the King's Road called Forbidden Fruit. But Fly moved to black drainpipes and brothel creepers. Gradually, the punks edged out the hippies, and places like Gandalf's Garden gave way to places like Vivian Westwood's shop, Sex. Just walking, age 12, past that place, the rudest word in the world towering over me in huge, wet-look pink letters made my heart race. Everything about the world Fly was entering terrified me. The look, the language, the attitude. She painted her room black and forbade me to enter. Sometimes when she was out, I would sneak in to look at her things, her panoply of silk scarves, her silver bangles that covered her wrists like armour, her dressing table with her coal, her black nail varnish, her peacock feathers. Her clothes were an amalgam of Beardsley, Carnival and punk rock. Every time she went out at night, she was pushing some kind of look. She had a black cowboy suit with white piping, and when she wore it with her cowboy boots, she strode like a man. She started telling me to fuck off if I dared to speak to her at the breakfast table and swiping me round the head with a bangled arm when I pissed her off, which was most of the time. Beatrice and Izzy, the only family members she could tolerate, had left London by then, Beatrice for Bristol and Izzy to live on a commune near Oxford. When she wasn't being grounded, Fly was out on the King's Road, usually upstairs at the Cadogan where the barman turned a blind eye to underage drinking. She never brought anyone home except on the rare occasions when she had the house to herself. 
One Sunday night, my parents came back from the country, Sissy and me in tow, and walked into their bedroom to find her and a young man with a freckled face and green and ginger spiked hair leaping from their preposterous four-poster bed. Spike, as he was then known, advanced naked towards my appalled father, hands outstretched. I don't remember this, but I do remember the unsettling sight of Spike tugging his tartan bondage trousers on over his lily-white bottom as he shambled off down the corridor. Years later, when Fly and I were at a party, he was introduced to me as a landscape gardener called Stephen Pike. I became his girlfriend and soon discovered where we'd met before. Sleeping with each other's boyfriends was seen as an inevitable hazard of our closeness as sisters and perfectly acceptable, provided a decent lapse was observed. Laurent, my French husband, had been Beatrice's boyfriend before he was mine. The value of sharing is so deeply ingrained in us as to seem, to many, dizzyingly boundaryless. Shared boyfriends, towels, toothbrushes, even university degrees. Izzy would later borrow Beatrice's degree to get her first job in publishing. Mum became more and more appalled by the spectacle of her daughter's adolescence. She read Margaret Mead's Coming of Age in Samoa in an attempt to make sense of it all, but it didn't help. She would impose absurd curfews and then sit on the stairs, fretting in her nightdress, hours after they'd been missed. Phobic as she was about conflict, she would try in vain to get my father to apply the principle of consequence to their behaviour. The chaos of their emancipation reminded her of her own wild mother and filled her with a sense of dread, particularly when we all began to show such a deep devotion to Eileen. After all, Gran was ahead and Mum would forever be a straight. Brilliant. Thank you. That was amazing. OK, well, changing again to a completely different kind of vibe. This is more London-y, uh, less family-oriented. And I actually haven't finished it yet, so I can't really go into as much brilliant detail <laughs> as Mari did about Heads and Straits, which I have read. So, um, Paul Morley wrote for The Enemy a while back. He's from Manchester originally. And um, this is a very short extract, really, of his kind of journey. And he's writing about the Bakerloo line, the brown Bakerloo line. My most regular journey on the soon-to-be-extinct Stanmore branch of the Bakerloo was fairly brief. I would join it, sometimes at open-air Finchley Road, yards before it entered the raw, gaping tunnel going south after an outdoor overground journey from Stanmore, or at the next station, Swiss Cottage, where it was now fully embedded into the subterranean tube system. This is essentially where the tube becomes the tube, even though most of the network's tracks are not underground. The tube is the tube in another place deeply distant from the everyday sky-high sun, clouds, moon and stars, where you think about things differently, where you can be in different places that all look the same, surrounded by others who've also become something else, so they are strangers anyway, and then even stranger, because they are temporarily concealed, passive, face-to-face, back-to-back, People in, people out, crushed together, touching, pulling away, lost for words, between the lines, not quite themselves, not quite anchored, temporarily fixed in this volatile, secluded zone. Fellow nomads, people in, people out, at the mercy of invisible forces, keeping their minds well away from the dense, braced and soaking, rat-packed, worm-jammed void that encircles them. I just thought that was the, just perfect really also Paul Morley is just really cool yeah <laughs> so you should read that and he's the only person who I'll tolerate he calls me sweetheart and it's the <laughs> only person I'll let <laughs> let do that his top trumps is cool as well on the back because he um 
unashamedly rates his tube geekiness as medium to high and <laughs> I can relate to that. <laughs> anyway, thanks very much for talking with us, Mario. It's been brilliant. You're very welcome. Cheers. Next, we have an extract from the audiobook edition of Charlie Higson's The Enemy. Listeners be warned, there are zombies in town. Small Sam was cycling like a demon. There were grown-ups everywhere. The roads were crawling with them. Where had they all come from? There was something going on. Every time he tried to get back towards Camden, he'd come up against a group of them and had to turn round and cycle furiously the other way. He had gone in such a roundabout route and taken so many side roads and turnings that he wasn't exactly sure where he was now. He was coming down a main road of grimy low buildings that looked like it hadn't been up to much even before the disaster. And then he saw something he recognised. Pizza Express. This must be Kentish Town then. He remembered his mum and dad talking about which Pizza Express to go to. Let's go to the one in Kentish Town. It was big and had a very high ceiling. There used to be a strange wire statue of a man standing in one corner. He found it a bit scary when he was younger. <laughs> How silly to be scared of a statue. As far as he knew, Kentish Town was next to Camden. So maybe he hadn't got as lost as he'd thought. All he needed to do was keep going downhill. There was a cloud of black smoke filling the road ahead. A shop was on fire. He held his breath and zoomed through, screwing his face up. Luckily, the road was clear on the other side. Grown-ups didn't like fire. They would keep away. And there was the back of Sainsbury's, a funny-looking metal building on the canal like something out of Star Wars. This was it. He'd made it. This was Camden. But with so many grown-ups out on the street, he wondered where his friends might be. And Ella. He hoped she wasn't too scared without him. He remembered the feeling he'd had when he'd first seen the mob of grown-ups marching down Camden Road like an army. He knew what his fear was now that the grown-ups were massing to attack his friends. Maybe the kids had also had to take another route to be safe. He pedalled harder and soon came to where several roads met near the tube station. He stopped at a traffic island in the middle. In the past there would have been cars and lorries and buses rushing past in all directions, and the pavements would have been filled with kids going to the market. Now it wasn't like being in a city at all. The buildings might just as well have been rocks and cliffs. The abandoned stationary cars were boulders, the road a dried-up riverbed. There was even a sound, a rushing, swirling noise like water. He'd heard it before today. It wasn't water. It was the sound of massed grown-ups, breathing, sighing, hissing, their feet scuffing on the tarmac. But where was it coming from? He looked around. There, in the direction of Holloway, up the road that led past the front of Sainsbury's, a great mob of grown-ups was moving towards him. Even from this distance he could smell them. He would have to get shifted. Which way to go, though? Which route would the other kids have taken? There were so many choices here, and now there were more grown-ups coming along the other roads. Maybe they were trying to see what was going on. The only clear route was the one heading back the way he had come, towards Kentish Town and the fire, which he could see now was spreading. The whole of the sky in that direction was hazy with a purple-grey smudge. Come on! Which way was the centre of London? The road signs were too confusing. They pointed to places whose names he didn't know. The most obvious route was down the high street. It was the widest road. There were a few grown-ups wandering about in it, but if he went fast enough, he could get round them. He shunted the bike forwards, put his full weight on one pedal, then the other, and soon his feet were a blur as the pedal spun round and the chain rattled over the cogs. He passed a knot of grown-ups who made a feeble lunge at him, 
but as he glanced back at them, his front wheel hit a hole in the road. The whole bike jarred. He lost control and flew over the handlebars, landing in a painful heap on the tarmac. For a few seconds he was too stunned to move. His trousers were ripped and his elbows and knees were bleeding. Then he sensed someone coming near and shook himself awake. He looked up just as a skinny young mother with no hair and dribbles streaming down her chin made a grab for him. He rolled away from her groping hands and kicked out. He got her in the knee and she went down face first. Sam was up. He looked at his bike. The front wheel was bent out of shape and the tyre was burst. All that work. Wasted. He would have to walk now. He might never be able to catch up with the others. Actually, he would have to run. There were more grown-ups closing in on him. He stumbled forward and felt his legs wobble. He was dizzy from the fall and limping. He forced himself to move, though, watching his dirty trainers as they slapped down on the road in front of him. He needed somewhere to hide. He passed some steps going down to a public toilet. No, he didn't want to get trapped. He remembered the tube station. Maybe, if he could get in there, in the dark, he'd be all right. Just so long as he got safely off the streets. He broke into a run and dodged past some railings. Two fathers came lolloping up behind him and smashed into the ironwork. A car had driven into the side of the tube station, creating a gaping hole in the big steel shutters. A skeleton sat at the wheel. You never normally saw skeletons anywhere. Sam ducked in and clambered over the ticket gates. He fumbled in his pocket for the torch he'd picked up at Waitrose, pumped the handle and flicked the switch. He scribbled the blue-white beam over the walls. There was only one thing for it. He would have to go down towards the platforms. A shriek outside spurred him on, and in a few seconds he was rushing down the unmoving escalator two steps at a time, his torch beam zigzagging wildly, showing flashes of torn posters for holidays and televisions and shops and other useless things. It was a mess at the bottom. Fallen bricks, tangles of wires, pools of yellow water. A dead body crawling with maggots. There had been a fire here recently and he could smell smoke. The grown-ups were still following him. They were on the escalator, their noisy progress echoing off the tiled walls, grunts and heavy breathing and clumsy feet. Sam looked quickly to the right and left and chose right. He ran on through the passenger tunnels until he reached a platform. He quickly shone his beam along the rusting tracks. There was water and rubbish lying between the rails. He jumped down, pressed himself against the wall below the platform and switched off his torch. It was utterly dark. A darkness like he had never known before the disaster. There was no source of light anywhere. No winking safety bulbs, no glow of electrics. The world had ceased to exist. Sam suddenly became aware of his other senses. First the cuts and scrapes on his bruised body. Then the sleepers and a metal bolt digging into his side. Next came the smell of dust and oil and damp and decay pressing into his nose. Then his hearing. Nearby some dripping water and a small animal moving about, a mouse or a rat. Further away but moving closer, a grown-ups. Moving on swiftly from the alleyways of Camden, let's round things off with a chat with the wonderful Iris Jones Simmentel. Hello, today I'm talking to Iris Jones Simmentel on the publication of her memoir, Far From The East End. Iris is the winner of the Life Stories competition we ran with Saga magazine, in which her story was chosen over 5,000 other entrants to be published by Penguin. It tells the story of her early years in the East End, her evacuation to Wales during the war, and the struggle of her family, along with the rest of London, to get back to normal after the war was over. So Iris, how do you remember the East End from your early years there as a little girl? The old East End was very crowded, very dark. Um, Buildings completely covered with soot. That's what I think of when I think of the old East End. 
is the dirt. But it was fairly safe. Uh, everybody knew each other. Families never moved far from each other. Uh, children played in the streets from morning till night. I can remember from being two years old, being shoved out of the door in the morning and not coming back in unless I had to go to the toilet or for mealtime. In fact, it was so good out there on the street, I'd hide under the bushes when it was time to go in, down there with the smell of cat's piddle. <laughs> Isn't there something that you talk about in your book when you uh, sort of wandered too far and you couldn't find a toilet at one point? Oh, right, right, because we, we were very young and uninhibited, and we often wandered too far away. And usually we were safe, but we often used to knock on people's doors and ask them if we could use their toilets. Not because we really had to go to the toilet. We were just being daring and nosy. But one time I really had to go and uh, knocked on a few doors and were told to buzz off. So uh, that was terrible. There were no public toilets around then. And uh, I'm afraid I didn't make it home in time and got in terrible trouble. <laughs> So was it um, considered safe enough by parents, really, that their children were just able to wander around like that? I can only assume that. Mm. I think our parents must have cared about us, but I often wonder, you know, maybe they were just glad to see the back of us. <laughs> yeah. So have you been back to the East End since you left? Oh, yes. Um, I, I wanted to visit every place in my childhood and uh, growing up years. I visited each house that I have lived in. The people were gracious enough to uh, let me come in and poke around. And the interesting thing is that my very first house that I remember on Carey Road in Dagenham, nothing had been changed in that house. Every house on that particular street had been modernized. And it was just amazing to me. It was just like stepping back into my own history. Um, even the cupboard that in my bedroom where my brother kept all the monsters uh, was still painted the same color and still had stickers on it that we'd left there. And that is how many years ago? I'm 74 now, you know, that's a long time ago. Wow. So, Do you think the area has changed much? Um, that particular area had not changed much. But uh, when I went back to the heart of the old East End, uh, having been born on Blackwall Pier, there was very little recognizable. Um, I think the Brunswick Wharf, where the uh, station house was, Poplar Station, or I'm not sure if it was called Poplar Station or Blackwall Station, but my grandfather was uh, the station master on the train. And that's where we were living with our grandparents when I was born. So, of course, those buildings are all gone. All the familiar dock side buildings are gone, replaced with huge apartment buildings and office buildings. Um, we did find the pub that my nan used to get lost. She'd go to the grocery store and forget to come home. <laughs> She'd always stop for a um, her Guinness on the way home at the old steamship and it's on Naval Row. Well, we found Naval Row and we found Nan's pub. Um, but little else remained 
course, I visited the church where I was baptized and where everybody in my family historically has been married uh, or christened or buried from. So I got to look at their books and found my name in there. It's always nice to see that you that you really exist. <laughs> but um, yeah, much of the old East End is gone, the crowded streets. I'm not sure if there is any community left in the old East End. Uh, the few pockets that I would have remembered are now England's poorest, and um, I think there's a lot of crime there. But they're certainly not the communities that we had and enjoyed. Yeah, because you talk a lot in your book about how strong the sense of community is, is in the areas where you grew up, how everyone would sort of support each other. And I know the party that you have near the end of the book and everyone turns up and it's sort of wonderful old knees up. Do you think that that's a, a sort of sad thing about London today that most people don't know their neighbours? And I think that's very true, yeah. I think um, just since I've been living home here in England, I've talked to a lot of people that haven't a clue who lives next door to them. It's even true where I live now, and I live down in a small seaside town in Devon. We've never met the neighbors. Mm. We've been there for uh, three years in that particular place. Uh, yeah, I think there's a lack of trust. I think people are just so fearful now of what's out there, you know. You could not do what our mothers did and turn us out in the morning and assume that we were going to be safe. We were given warnings, yep. I think I've talked about this in the book. You never speak to strangers. Uh, you don't sit on the curb because dirty old men spit there and don't sit near a drain hole because you get diphtheria, all those kind of motherly things. But basically we were safe. You did get ill a couple of times when you were younger, didn't you, with various things? you. Yeah. It's suspected now that I might have had rheumatic fever, but it was never diagnosed then. But I was always crying with pain in my legs and limbs. But, of course, we, had, we suffered a lot of malnutrition too. Mm. Um, but somehow or other I contacted um, what was then called yellow jaundice, but, of course, that's just a symptom of hepatitis. But how did we get that? I don't know. But once I got to Wales, when I was evacuated, my health did a complete turnaround. I'm, I was well cared for, well, definitely well fed. I have a lot of memories of being really hungry. Yeah. <laughs> did you find it very odd ending up in Wales, having, having grown up in the East End? And was it a completely different, different situation you found yourself in when you were there? Oh, God, yeah, it was completely different. The people that took me in, they were just like they'd been my parents from day one. They paid attention, which my book talks a lot about, not feeling any um, caring in my own home from my own parents much of the time. But my Welsh mother was always there for me, and my Welsh father was always a great comfort. Of course, uh, well, the food, again, I've mentioned that before. We were well-fed and cleaner than I'd ever been in my life. 
I mean, back in England, <laughs> I, I think I've also mentioned in the book about how we had one bath a week if we were lucky, and we all shared the same tub of water because it was so hard to sort of produce a whole bath full of hot water. So whoever got the last bath uh, had to scrape off quite a load of scum from the top of the water before they get in. I'm pretty sure I was always the last one in, but it w could have been poor old mum. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> but, yeah, and I can remember being going to stay with an auntie one time and her almost picking me up like a dirty rag and dumping me in the bathtub immediately and scrubbing the grime off of my feet and my neck. Yeah, it's hard to imagine, really, that we lived that way now. Um, we were recently discussing uh, toothpaste with someone, and it, I said, well, you certainly uh, have plenty of choice now. I don't remember having a toothbrush until I was probably 12, you know? My parents both had full sets of false teeth, so maybe they didn't know that people were supposed to take care of them, and obviously they'd lost theirs early in the game. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much for talking with me today, Iris. Iris's wonderful memoir, Far From the East End, is in shops now. And that's it from the Penguin Podcast. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, visit the website, thepenguinpodcast.co.uk. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email us on podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or find us on Twitter at Penguin Podcast. You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.